What's up, everybody? Thanks so much for joining us on the Eden Podcast. We are so glad to have you. Today, we're beginning a brand new series of messages called You Belong Here. And in this series, we're going to talk about the power of community and why your voice matters. Thanks so much for tuning in. Let's get started. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here today. My name is Daniel. I'm the lead pastor here at Eden Church, and we want you to know that we're so grateful that we get to be together this morning. If this is your first time, we're especially grateful that you're here. And I want to take a moment just to invite you after service. I'm going to be standing at the Connect Center. I would love to shake your hand, get your name, and we have a gift there for you. Uh, because we want to make sure you don't leave empty-handed from Eden. We have a little gift we want to give you, but, uh, but if you would make your way uh, after service, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, to grab a cup, and I'd love to, love to get to meet you. But I am excited. Today we are starting a brand new series of messages, and it's called You Belong Here, and I want to process something together uh, that, that maybe I've picked up on, but perhaps you have also, and that is that sometimes when we avoid being in community, we are doing so because we know that when we are in a community of relationships, we realize that eventually people will find out who we really are. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but that is sometimes why I don't like to get super close to people, because if I get close to them, then they're going to know exactly who I am. They're going to know me um, in, in, in all of my flaws. And I really think that this is something that's true of all of us, that all of us long to be known, and we all want to be accepted. Right? We want to be known and we want to be loved. And I think that whether we've ever articulated this before in our lives, this is one of the aspirational values of our life, to be in relationship with a community of people that know us well, but also love us for all of our flaws. But I also think that the opposite is true. Perhaps one of the most painful things in life is to be known and rejected. And I think what happens sometimes for us is that perhaps we have a higher value of being accepted than we do of being known. And so we are willing to forego being known if we think that there is anything about our life that could be rejected by a community of people. We are willing, in other words, to live in isolation because in our minds, isolation is less painful than the feeling of rejection. Isolation for a lot of us is less painful than the feeling of rejection. And so today uh, we're beginning a two-week series called You Belong Here. And the goal of this two-week series is to begin to explore what community, what real community could feel like in an area like Silicon Valley. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but people who live in the Silicon Valley, I feel like we are all just kind of strangers, right? And, and you never know. Most of us don't know how long we're going to be in Silicon Valley. We don't know if a job is going to take us somewhere or if our job is still going to be here. And sometimes we may be all asking the same question, is it even worth investing in relationships? Is it even worth investing in a community of people? Because you know, like I know, that when you begin to invest in relationships, it's kind of a messy thing, right? It's not always rosy and, and peachy. I don't know what the phrase would be, but it's not always perfect. And so what we talk about when we are talking about community over the next several weeks, we are talking about a group of people that have a strong sense of interconnectedness. That sense that you have security in your relationship, that sense that you have support no matter what you do, you know you have a community of people who are in it for the long haul. That sense that you are linked together with other people for a purpose. And so as we begin to talk about this idea of community, I wanted to bring up something that I think is true about all of us in terms of community. What is true about all of us is that we all have a community that we get, and then we all have a community that we choose. And the community that we get is our family. 
And the community that we choose oftentimes is that group of people that we are trying to use to perhaps replace our family. Because there are a lot of us that have grown up, we were lucky enough to have grown up with a family that we would also choose to be our community. But there are some of us, maybe many of us, that are growing up, that we've grown up with a family that we would not choose to be our community. And so for different reasons, we're all looking to build community somewhere. For some of us, it's because we've moved away from our families. And so we're trying to create community outside of those relationships. For others of us, our values have changed from our family. And so we are trying to link up with other people whose values align with our new values. For some of us, we have maybe had unique challenges in our household that we are now trying to distance ourselves from. And so we're trying to build this new community, and I think that that is a wonderful thing. But I also think that there needs to be caution, right? When you begin to build your community, and this is the reason why, is because whoever you choose to be in your community, you have to know that you are going to begin to bear a resemblance to them. Whoever you choose your community to be, you will begin to bear a resemblance. And you all know what this is like. How many of you have ever cringed at pictures from high school and middle school when you look at your hairdos and, your, and the clothes that you wear, right? I cringe every time I look at these little skinny bangs when the rest of my head was shaved off or these little, little highlighted tips in my hair. I thought, what was I thinking? First of all, second of all, what were my parents thinking? But the crazy thing is that it wasn't just you. It was all your friends, and you all started dressing alike. You all started wa- walking or, you know, talking the same way and reading the same things and your fashion started to mimic each other because whoever your community is, you will begin to bear a resemblance to that community. But the interesting thing is that you don't just bear a resemblance in your passions, you also bear resemblance in your scars. You also bear resemblance in your scars. When I was growing up, uh, we, me and my brothers accumulated very similar characteristics. We accumulated very similar scars. If you were to look at all of our hands today, I have six brothers. If you were to look at all of our hands, we would all have these little nicks and scratches on our hands. And you might think that there is some weird genetic deformation uh, in our gene code, which that may be true, but, but it's not for that reason. And this is why we all have scars on our hands. It's because of my dad. My dad always had a side hustle when we were growing up. And his primary side hustle was that he would buy old cars, he would fix them up, and then he would sell them. And one of the reasons why he was so profitable at this was because he had a free workforce of seven boys to work on these cars when we got in trouble. Instead of doing chores, this is what we did. And so if you've ever worked on a car, you know that from time to time you'll scratch your hand on the corner of a sharp piece of metal or you scrape it across a a bolt or something or you dig it into the side of the engine. And so that's why all of us have these similar scars. Because we're all part of the same community. And the interesting thing about life is that all of us have scars. We all have scars. Sometimes they're emotional scars. Sometimes they're physical scars. Sometimes they're psychological scars. But we all have over time begun to accumulate scars in our life. And it's really interesting because sometimes these are self-inflicted scars, right? We make bad decisions We're operating with the best knowledge that we have, but we still get hurt in the process. And other times, we get scars not because of decisions that we've made, but because of the decisions of other people, where they have hurt us deeply. We all have scars. And one of the reasons why I love reading the Bible is because you would be hard-pressed to go very long reading through the Scriptures without finding someone who didn't have a bunch of scars in their life. 
Because the Bible is filled with stories, true stories of people who have accumulated massive scars in their life. And so today, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at one of the most messed up families in the entire Bible. And I think that you will feel a lot better about yourself at the end of it. I know I did. And so to do that, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the Old Testament. This is the first half of the Bible. This is also known as the Jewish Scriptures. And today I want to let you know on the front end, I'm going to be covering a lot of text. So you can try to follow along if you brought your Bible or you have an app or whatever. But we will have all the verses on the screen uh, ready for you to, to follow along. And so we're going to be reading out of the first book of the Bible, which is the book of Genesis. And we'll be in chapter 5. And the context leading up to this passage was really the beginning of the story of a, of a man named Abraham. He was the Jewish patriarch, and he was promised that he was going to be the seed of a great nation. But as he got older in life, he began to question this promise because he still didn't have a child. His wife and him could not give birth to a child. But eventually, as he got older, he had this miracle child, and they named him Isaac. And what was true about Isaac is that he sort of entered into the world with a lot of expectations on his life. He was kind of this golden boy, but the problem was is that he didn't live up to a lot of these expectations, and part of that was because he grew up in such a dysfunctional home. And what ended up happening is that we see that uh, Isaac ends up carrying a lot of the weight and the wounds of the dysfunction of his own household. He carries that into his future relationships. And so this is where we pick up. We're going to read this passage about this life that Isaac created, this messed up family that Isaac was part of creating. And so let's begin reading in Genesis 25, verse 21. At this point, Isaac is married, and now he's facing some of his own unique challenges. It says in verse 21, it says, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. Now, one of the things that we know is true about being uh, struggling with infertility is that no matter what generation, what age you are, what what society you live in, if you ever have experienced the desire to have a child, but you cannot have a child, this is an extremely painful thing to go through. But it's also uniquely painful in this context because what a lot of people believed was that, and they believed this superstitiously, that God was somehow punishing this family for some past sin, that somehow they, were, they couldn't have a child because of some past sin that God was now punishing them for. And so what did Isaac do? He began to pray. And he said, and this is what we read, it says, The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. So we learned that it wasn't just one child that they were blessed with, but they had twins. And the more details that we read about their development will really play into what we read about them later on in their relationship. And so verse 24, it says, When the time came for her to give birth, there were, twin, there were twin boys in the womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. And after this, his brother came out with hands grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. How many guys would be excited to have a child at 60 years old? I guess Abraham was excited. But what's really interesting about this storyline is that one thing we know about this time in history is that parents took really seriously the naming of their children. And the reason why they did that was because, because they felt, they believed that what you named a child would actually impact their future. And I just want to suggest, lately I've heard a lot of kids' names going around, and I think that we should go back to getting serious about naming our kids, okay, you guys? I'm just kidding. I'm not the person to be talking about this. 
my wife gave me the special privilege of naming our first son. And so his name is Cohen Timothy. And I took a lot of pride in this process because I felt like this was our first son and I really wanted to set him up for a lifetime of success. And so we named him Cohen, which means priest. It's a Hebrew word, Kohen. And it, it really means to be set apart. And I, my hope was that there would be a distinction in his life that God would call him to something great. And then we were having him during Christmas time. And I thought, what a gift. And we came across, as we were looking at these names, uh, the, the name Timothy. And I read that the name Timothy means gift of God. And I thought, oh, what a perfect alignment. He's being born during Christmas time. I feel like he's a gift to us. We're going to name him Timothy. And so years later on, maybe a year or so, he's still young, and we're talking with some friends that have kids, and we're just talking, and they ask, you know, how did you come up with the name Cohen Timothy? And so we explained to them the same thing that I explained to you, and he said, well, that's really interesting. I have two daughters. Um, we never had a son, but I had always thought if I did have a son, I wanted to name him Matthew. And he said, the reason why I want to name him Matthew is because I love what his name means. It means gift of God. And I thought that's really interesting. I don't know a lot about Hebrew, but I know a little bit. And uh, the same root word for Matthew is not the same root word for Timothy. So how could they mean the same thing? And so I did a little bit of research. He, I think, pitied me. And then I came back to him the next week and I said, you know what, buddy? You were right. Matthew means gift of God, not Timothy. And so I felt like I was Britney Spears getting a Chinese tattoo that didn't mean what I thought it meant. So I have no room to criticize. But this is what he named his children. The first son they named Esau. And this is literally what the name Esau means. It means red head. It means red head. And I know that the dad was the one who named that child because there's no way mom was going to let someone name their kid redhead. And, and if your son's name is Esau, God bless you. There's no judgment. But he, it gets even worse. They named their second son Jacob. And I know there are probably some Jakes here, um, but let me, let me kind of help to understand what this name means. It's really a mashup of a few Hebrew words. And the most dominant meaning is heel grabber. That is the most dominant meaning in the name Jacob. And that meant that he was someone that was trying to displace another person. And it sort of has this negative connotation. And every time I think that Jacob maybe heard his name all throughout his life, he was reminded of the fact that he was always trying, he was always going to be the type of person that was trying to be someone else. That he was always going to be the type of person that wasn't enough. And so let's keep reading. In verse 27, we learn a little bit more about these boys. Verse 27, it says, The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So we learn a few things about their development. The first thing that we learn is that these boys were extremely different. They were like polar opposites of one another. Esau was like this big, burly, rugged, focused, tough kind of brother. And I kind of think of him as like the Chris Hemsworth Thor. I don't know if you know who Chris Hemsworth, but like that Thor, buff, rugged kind of guy. And then you have Jacob, who was content to stay at home. He was probably doing finger painting. He was maybe writing poems or whatever. He was probably a little bit more sensitive. He was home and hanging out with mom. And, and I think of him as sort of the Liam, niece, uh, the Liam Hemsworth from the last song, if you guys know that reference with Miley Cyrus. That dates me. I'm, not that I've seen that movie. I've just heard of it. Um, 
And what I love about this environment is that in, that in a normal context, right, this would have been a beautiful thing to celebrate in a healthy home to celebrate the fact that your children have different interests and different personalities. This would have been something wonderful to uphold. But the problem was is that they were growing, in a, growing up in a home where their parents created a culture of favoritism. And so dad liked the more physical, aggressive, and athletic son. And mom preferred the more emotionally available son, the son who was willing to cuddle until they were 13 years old. And this is the problem, is that when you have favoritism in the household, what it does is it creates a toxic culture of insecurities. And if you've ever experienced that before, where you felt like you were growing up in a home where a sibling was favored over you, you know that it leaves you with a sense of insecurity about your self-worth. And it was in this context that it left Jacob with this feeling like he wasn't good enough. And I just imagine Jacob kind of going out on the next hunting trip and his dad kind of being frustrated because he couldn't shoot the, the, the arrow the right direction. And he, he may have said these words that stung Jacob so deeply. He said, why can't you be more like Esau? And I wonder if you can remember the first time when you felt like you weren't good enough to someone that you were valuing. Do you remember the first time that you felt like you couldn't live up to the expectation that someone else had on your life, someone that you valued and you loved. And I just imagine when I asked myself this question, I could like think of that moment. I can think of that time where someone said something to me that just pierced my heart. And it, all, it broke my heart. I remember crying and slamming the door and running out of the car. And it was that first time where I was told I wasn't good enough because of who I was. And you know what happens in these moments? Something crazy happens, and as you're kind of thinking and processing that moment in your life, this was probably also the first time that you learned to wear a mask in your life. It's sort of this defense mechanism that you use to protect your heart, and from that point forward, you learned how to pretend to get along in the world. And this little mechanism that you learned in that moment, the first time that you felt like you weren't good enough, you have learned to keep that with you throughout your entire lifetime. And we actually have like this high value of this in our culture, right? It's the, the statement, fake it till you make it. And I know that I do that all the time. About a year ago, I started getting serious about learning how to surf. And I remember like I was super insecure walking out into like the ocean with these guys who had hard boards and I had like this big old foam board and it was kind of embarrassing. But there were some times where people didn't see me with my board. And they just saw me with my wetsuit. And in that moment, they thought that I was actually a good surfer. They hadn't seen me out in the water yet. And sometimes they would approach you and they would start saying things to you like you knew what they were talking about. And they would use all these vocabulary words, right? They would be talking about like the tides and the waves and the wind direction and all that stuff. And you know what I did? You think I asked them to clarify a definition of what the word skag means? I didn't. I said, yeah, there are a lot of skags out there. And I had no idea what I was talking about because I was faking it until I made it, right? I was willing to pretend because I didn't want to be embarrassed and let them know that I wasn't who they thought I was. And that happens to us in so many different contexts in our life. And some of us have gotten so good at pretending. We are so proficient at pretending and we are going to do it until we get what we want. And this is really the part of, 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 of Jacob's story that where it begins to unfold, this idea of pretending. And so we're going to skip a chapter. We'll be in chapter 27. And at this point, Isaac is old. 
and he's preparing for his death, and this is what it says. It says, when Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and he said to him, my son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I'm now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare for me the kind of tasty food I like, and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. And so what, uh, what uh, Isaac was offering to Esau in this moment was what they call this blessing. And this blessing was super significant because in this culture, they believed that this blessing actually played out into your destiny, that what was stated here was going to actually impact what your future was going to look like. And this only was given to one of the children, the children that they believed had the most promise, the most hope of making a difference. And so Jacob was ready, I'm sorry, Isaac was ready to give this blessing to Esau. And once you gave the blessing, it couldn't be reneged. It was like chiseled in stone. Once he said it, it was directed to the person that he said it. And so then we keep reading. In verse 5, it says, Now Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. And we, when Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully. And do what I tell you. Go out to the flock, bring me two choice young goats, goats so that I can prepare some tasty food from your, for your father just the way that he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. So she had come up with a pretty foolproof plan. She was going to lead her son to the life that he had always dreamed of. And all he had to do was to lie, to cheat, and to steal to get it. Verse 11, it says, Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, but my brother Esau is a hairy man while I have smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. And his mother said to him, my son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. I feel like Rebekah was telling herself something that every parent has tried to convince themselves of at some point that our children will not bear the consequences of our insecurities, that our children will not bear the consequence of our anger, that our children will not bear the consequence of our addiction. I am not a perfect parent. And so I understand exactly the heart that Rebecca had. She just wanted her spouse to see the value that she saw in her son. She just wanted to love him for who he was. But the problem with her approach is that she was saying, you have to pretend to be someone that your father loves to receive his vision for your life. You have to pretend to be someone that your father loves so that he will believe in you. You have to pretend to be someone that your father loves so that he'll, have, he'll desire you. And I wonder if this describes any person in the room today. I wonder if there are any of us today that feel like we've been striving our entire lives to please somebody that will never accept us for who we are. I wonder if there are some of us today that have reoriented our lives. We have defined our careers to be someone that we think will be of value to others, that we think other people will finally respect. I think one of the most heartbreaking things about this entire story is that, yes, Esau was everything that Jacob wasn't, 
But Jacob was everything that Esau wasn't. And the longer that Jacob continued to try to be like Esau, the longer he was avoiding the person that God created him to be. And so this is what happened. Jacob dresses up, he tricks his father, he steals the blessing. And as soon as, as, soon as Esau finds out about it, he threatens to kill Jacob. And so Jacob runs for his life. And I think that if this is all we know about Jacob's story, it would be hard to have a lot of sympathy for him, right? Because all we know about his track record so far is that he is a liar, he's a deceiver, he's a cheat, he's a thief, and he's the kind of person that would be willing to do whatever it takes to get what he wants. But I think that there's another side of the story. And that is that we have to understand that Jacob was wounded. Jacob's life was full of scars. Jacob was broken, and, and he was operating with these father wounds and these mother wounds. And if you have ever experienced those types of wounds in your own household, then you know that it is difficult to engage in healthy relationships throughout the course of the rest of your life that you have to become aware enough to recognize that you have patterns in your life that are the result of the relationship that you had with your own parents, some unmet expectation or some unmet needs. And it really kind of gets you out of balance. And this is what I think was happening to Jacob. And so I think that in a lot of ways, this is Jacob's story, but this is your story. And this is my story. That we are all operating with a set of wounds in our hearts some scars in our life that we received and maybe haven't dealt with from when we were children. And so let's continue to read this story. We're going to skip a little bit more. Genesis chapter 28. We're told when Jacob found out about this, verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and he set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. And so it seems almost as though Jacob felt like with his scars, he had to isolate himself from his family. It says, taking one of these stones there, he put it under his head and he lay down to sleep. He had literally hit rock bottom in his life. Verse 12, it says, he had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching into the heavens and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. This is the interesting part about this Vision, And you might wonder, kind of this kind of a unique vision that he had, it was like this stairway leading up into heaven. And, and really, there are no other accounts in all of Judeo-Christian writing that kind of mimic this kind of vision. But we do know that during that time, people believed that if you believed in a deity, there was sort of this portal that took you into that deity's presence. And so it may have been God's way of helping Jacob understand the significance of this vision. And in this vision, the primary thing that God is doing is he's beginning to reveal himself to him. And he says this powerful statement as he introduces himself. He says, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. And anytime we read statements like this, this was really what God is saying. He says, I am the same God who accomplished these things in Abraham's life that, will, that is willing to do this in your life. And so he introduces himself in this way, but he does it with sort of a unique caveat. He says, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham. It actually, Abraham was his grandfather. But then he says, I am also the God of Isaac. But notice that he doesn't say the God of your father, Isaac. He doesn't say that. And I think it was almost as if he was saying, I want to give you a new vision for your family. 
I want to give you a new vision for your life. And look what he goes on to say in verse 14. He says, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. Can you imagine what this would have sounded like to Jacob? When his parents had named him a name that would go on to define the majority of his life. That he was always going to be the type of person that was never good enough in their eyes. That he was always going to be the type of person that was willing to do whatever it takes to grab and steal what other people have. Like this is what they named their child. And to, be enter, to enter into this moment where God gives him a vision and God essentially says, I have a greater vision for your life than what your parents have for you. And even though your earthly father doesn't think that you're going to amount to much, I want to let you know that I have a vision and a plan for your life that amounts to something greater than he could ever accomplish. And sometimes I wonder, why does God allow for us to get into that moment of desperation? Do you ever wonder that? Like, why couldn't have God given him this vision a few months ago? Or several years ago, why is it that God allows for us to get to this place where we feel like we have all, we're on the verge of quitting? Where we feel like all we can do is isolate ourselves from the rest of the world? I think part of the reason is because God wants to give you a life that you can't possibly earn. I think God wants you to know and wants to offer you a life that you can't possibly earn. And the only way that you're going to discover that is if you give up trying. The only way that you know that God has something for you that you couldn't earn on your own is when you give up trying and you receive it in grace. And I think that a lot of us have never experienced that before in our lives because we're not willing to live at the bottom. We're not willing to stop pretending. And some of us have developed a super well-manicured brand of our lives. Like we know how to post the right pictures on social media to make people think that we're happy. And you know that social media is everyone's highlight reel, right? Like when you look at social media, that is not people's real lives. They tell you exactly what, you, what they want you to think about their life. And they only post the days and the times of their life when it feels like they're standing on the mountaintop. And some of us always feel like we have to be on. We have to keep promoting this image that we think other people will finally respect. But the truth is, is that you and I are broken. And that you're a mess, and I'm a mess inside. And this is actually something that is so valuable. We think it's shameful. We think it's embarrassing that we don't get to post as many pictures about our vacations on social media as everyone else does, but actually God sees this as something super valuable because it is in his economy and it is in this space that God begins to work and to shape a heart when it is broken, when it is humble, when it is calling out for help. And so what do you do with a God that loves you when you're at your worst? What do you do inside of a grace that powerful? I think one of the one things that we have available to us is that we have a shot at being really who we are. And that for the first time 
being the real us doesn't mean that we're going to be rejected. Next week, we're going to look at a few features of what it means to be in community with people. But as we kind of wrap up our time today, I want to ask a few questions for you to consider for yourself. Number one, what open wounds need healing today? What open wounds in your life need to be healed and be restored? And I think that as we started talking about this conversation, as we entered into it today, some of you could almost think immediately to that wound in your life that caused you to start pretending for the first time. And there are others of us that think that all of our wounds have healed, that we're good. But I think sometimes we allow for our wounds in our life to heal and we allow for time to heal those wounds. And they close up, and they're deformed, and they're ugly, and they're still broken. And so maybe today is the day that you begin to re-examine those old wounds in your life. And then you allow for grace to open up those wounds, and we begin to deal with them in a healthy way. Because what I've found is that sometimes even when a pain in my life has passed, sometimes I realize that I didn't deal with it in a healthy way. And everyone else can see in me that there is something underneath the surface about how I operate. And maybe today is the day that we allow for God's grace to re-examine those wounds in our life. Number two, are you tired of pretending? Are you tired of faking it? Are you tired of trying to brand yourself so that you can be accepted by a community of people? I feel like it requires so much energy to try to be someone that you're not. And one of the reasons why we don't want to be in community with other people is because we feel like we have to show up to these events, we have to hang out with people, we have to laugh and talk about things that maybe we don't even really care about. And maybe the hardest part is that we have to be in community and we, have to, we feel like we have to be something that we're not. And that is so draining for anyone. And so the question is, are you tired of pretending? Number three, are you ready to receive God's grace instead of earning it? One of the most offensive things about the message of Jesus is that you will never be good enough. That you will never be good enough, but there's a, there's a caveat to that, is that God doesn't expect you to be. And as soon as we can get over the offense of that, it becomes the most wonderful message in the world. That we're not going to be good enough, but God doesn't expect us to be. Number four, do you feel all alone today? and need to talk? Do you feel alone in your life right now? Do you feel like that you need somebody or something to come alongside you in this season of life? Do you feel like you're hungry and thirsty for some kind of real community in your life? Not the kind of highs and bys and the tertiary surface conversations that happen in the office place, but are you looking for someone who will know you and love you and receive you? Throughout this series, I'm not going to tell you that you have to choose this community because I think that has to be up to you. That's, that's up to your story. That's up to your life. But I do want to encourage you, as you consider a community, I want you to ask this question, what will that community do with my wounds? What will the community that I choose do with my scars? And I hope that you will choose a community of people that have something to offer you more than just time. I hope that you will choose a community of people that have something to offer you more than just being a victim. I hope that they'll offer you something more than your pain. And this is one thing that I hope and I pray will be true about this community. 
and that you should know is that we expect you to be wounded. But what we also expect in this community is that all of us would encounter a God whose grace is enough to look at our mess and to give us a brand new story. That is the hope that we have in this place, is that what has defined our life in the past no longer has to define our future. And it's not because of what we have done. It's because of what someone else has done on our behalf. That all of those scars and all of those pains and all of those little secrets in our lives that we feel define our identity can be washed away in a moment through the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity that we have every single week to gather together and to search and to ask, God, what do you have for us in this life? What do you have for us in this season? And God, one of the greatest challenges that we have is to overcome the fear of being received by a community of people that we're not even sure we trust yet. And God, what happens on a Sunday is such a wonderful thing in this community and you work in people's lives in such powerful ways, but it really is just a small portion of the value of what it means to be the body of Christ, what it means to be a part of this community of faith. And so, God, what we pray today is that you would help us to understand those areas in our lives where we are still walking with a limp, where we have allowed for the wounds and the scars in our lives to just sort of formulate and accumulate over time, but we've never really dealt with these painful issues. And God, I pray that if there's anyone here today that is walking through that, that you would allow for, you would give them the courage to invite someone into that process with them. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your unending love. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name.